This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Hello, I'm Chris Mason. Thanks for giving any questions a listen. We're on Radio 4 on Friday nights and Saturday lunchtimes, but we're also here whenever you want to listen. So here it is. When we arrived here earlier today, I found myself counting the light bulbs. That's how impressive the chandeliers are in here. 134 bulbs, I reckon. And right now, they all work. And then, someone turned on a carpet of fairy lights and I thought... That's the end of my counting expedition for one day. Suffice to say, we have a very well-illuminated Cornish audience. We're in Launceston Town Hall. I say that with some hesitancy because there's something of a debate I've discovered today about how to pronounce where we are, or even how to spell where we are. So let's ask the audience all together now, how do we say the town that we're in? Clarity, instantly there. I think I heard Launceston and Lanson, and then I sometimes hear Launceston, but without the T being pronounced. We're in a fantastic Cornish town, and it is a delight to be here. With us this weekend, two men who have just been exchanging anecdotes of their experiences on the Channel 4 show, Hunted. Stanley Johnson's a veteran of such televisual adventure, having described his experience on I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here as the most wonderful form of gastric surgery you can conceivably imagine. (laughs) Stanley has worked for the European Commission. He has served as a Conservative MEP. He has written a whole shelf full of books, fiction and non-fiction. Oh, and his son is the Prime Minister. Paternal pride, I guess it must still be beaming, Stanley. It certainly is. Burns in the breast. That's a great phrase. A, a Johnsonian phrase for us to open with. Uh, Johnny Mercer went on Hunted as well, and he was once seen on the telly lathering his chest in a shower, all in the name of flogging <laughs> soap. Uh, Johnny is now a Conservative MP, and he is a Defence Minister. How did you end up in that ad? Oh, um, <laughs> it's a terrible story. They, uh, I was assured it wasn't actually yet published in the UK, but then it was shown at half-time in the Super Bowl in the States, and everyone found out about it. Um, but, you know... You've got to do what you've got to do. <laughs> Thangam Debonair is in a string quartet at Westminster called the Statutory Instruments. It's a rather niche <laughs> reference to a method that governments use to tweak the law. Uh, Thangam was a professional cellist and was this week appointed as a shadow Brexit minister for Labour. Have the uh, last few months afforded uh, much practice time for statutory instruments? Well, funnily enough, we did actually have a concert booked um, for the 12th of December and then something... Came. Came along, got in the way, interrupted us, but we have got another concert coming up and we are having our first rehearsal of the year next Tuesday. Marvellous. And Ash Sarka is a senior editor at Navarra Media. She has described herself as a communist and was once described by the Times as Britain's loudest Corbynista. A Conservative MP once asked if there was any British tradition she didn't denigrate, to which she replied, Ash, crisp sandwiches. So what is it? Is it skips in a French stick? Quavers on a malt loaf? No, 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 no. I'm a traditionalist, right? So what you've got to do is you've got to get the ready-salted golden wonder, but this is the BBC, so there are other crisp brands too. (laughs) And you stick them between the cheapest slices of white bread you can find, and you let it just, you know, adhere to the roof of your mouth for roughly a day. Um, Any any ketchup mayonnaise? No, just butter, cheap bread, and... You know, really oily crisps. And it's stuff like that that makes me feel proud to be British. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, your Any Questions panel.
Right then, let's crack on. First question comes from Rob Tremaine. Hi, Rob. Hi. My question, with Harry and Meghan stepping back and wishing to be financially independent, should the Duchy of Cornwall continue paying for their lifestyle? A local reference from Rob there to the big story of the week and this decision from uh, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex to attempt to be financially independent. Most of their money at the moment does come from uh, the Prince of Wales and the Duchy of Cornwall. Ash, to start on this one. I mean, it might not come as much of a surprise that I'm something of a Republican, but... In fact, with Harry and Meghan stepping down from their roles as senior members of the royal family, it's a very relatable kind of issue. There's been a huge rift in the family, but he's not quite yet moved out of his nan's house and he's still taking money from his dad. (laughs) (laughs) And what about the the practicalities of what they appear to be attempting? I suppose there's that that question that's being asked, isn't there, about whether it is possible to be a part-time royal? So... There are lots of people who think that the sort of financial endeavours that they might be embarking on come in a bit of poor taste. There have been rumours of a Gwyneth Paltrow-style lifestyle portal. There have been also talk of them having some kind of uh, book or television deal like the Obamas had after they stepped down uh, from frontline politics. What I would say is that none of these things, to my mind, are quite as weird or quite as distasteful as forcing two young people to lead lives that they feel miserable in simply because it's part of our tradition. To be clear, though, would you... Would you get rid of the monarchy entirely? Would you do, as was floated today by Clive Lewis, one of the Labour leadership contenders, have a a referendum, if I can use that word in 2020, a a referendum on the future of the royal family? Here's why I think that we should have an elected head of state. What we saw last year with all the constitutional chicanery is that it put the Queen, because she is an unelected head of state, in a very difficult position. It might have been the case that she was uh, given unlawful advice by Boris Johnson regarding prorogation. She would have the power to overturn it, but she doesn't actually have the political room to because she hasn't been elected. So what is the point of having all these powers in the hands of someone who simply can't use them? That's why I don't think that the royal family is an institution that's fit for a 21st century democracy. And I think after, um, you know, the dearly beloved Queen departs this earth, we should actually start thinking seriously about what Britain as a republic might look like. Uh, Stanley Johnson, uh, ha- <clears throat> Stanley Johnson, on, on the specifics of what we've heard from Harry and Meghan this week, your, your reflections. Yeah, on the, on the specifics, which were about Harry and Meghan being financially independent, well, I picked up a, a Daily Mail. I'm not, I'm not sure I'm allowed to mention that sort of thing um, on, on air, but I did pick it up at, at Paddington Station. And what did I see? A photograph. And there's a photograph you see. It says... Megan Fleece to Canada. But what really caught my eye is the jeans she is wearing, and they've got huge holes in them at the, at the, at the, at the, at the knees. Is that unconstitutional? Uh, no, I said to myself, well, honestly, they must be financially pushed. If, <laughs> if, you know, if, if this... You know, if, if this lady has to leave the country with great holes in her jeans, I'm not particularly you know, tidy myself, and I do know I've got a stain on the shirt. But they can't um, see that on the radio. Ah, uh, you never know. You never know, because nowadays they can. You know. Anyway, on the point. On yes. the point. Good idea. 
on the point, I think that we have to be nicer to these two young people than we are being at the moment. I'm a little bit upset at the way everybody is laid in to Harry and laid in to Meghan in particular, because I actually think of the huge amount of really good work they've done. Now, in my field, of course, they've been absolutely marvellous on elephants. They've been marvellous on rhinos. Harry is the president of the Botswana Save the Rhino Association. I'm not being frivolous now. I'm saying they did such a lot of good work. And by the way, Meghan did a huge amount of work too. On, the, on I think, as far as I remember, she, she made a cookbook after the Grenfell, the Grenfell Fire, and that raised like half a, million, half a million pounds. So my thought is as follows. I agree with you. I absolutely agree with you. If that is the way they want to go, they must be allowed to do that. And that's, that's, that's normal and natural. But maybe they can be talked back a tiny bit and say, look, actually, don't be so hasty. You have a fantastic amount to offer, a really fantastic amount, and, and, and let's hear more of it. Thank you, Mr. for... Thank you, Anne for, for Labour. Your, your reflections on, on the decision that we've heard, the announcement that we heard from the Duke and Duchess this week, and then I'd be interested in your perspective on how they handled that announcement and whether the way it was handled has made it harder for them to achieve what they would like. Oh, well, I was going to cheekily answer Rob's question. Well, first. that's fair enough. That's <laughs> um, fair enough. Which was, was, should the Duchy of Cornwall continue paying for their lifestyle? And I actually think there's, there's a really complicated set of questions going on here about how the royal family is funded, how much, who, and for what purposes. And I think that's, a, that's an enormous subject, which I can't do justice to in three minutes. And, but I think in terms of a yes-no question, they're obviously going to have to settle this. And I would not want to have my family arguments about money played out in public. So I don't envy them. Um, well, maybe they should have sorted it all out before they well, announced exactly. it. exactly. That's where I was going. I think it, it seems unfortunate that they weren't able to sort it out before announcing it in public. Because, again, coming back to my own family, I think if I announced my decision on a family row in public before we'd actually had the discussion in private, that would not have gone down well. You're not would tempted to, are you? You've got a microphone well, in front of me. I have, and my mum's here in the audience, so I easily could start a row and we could be arguing in the car on the way home. But I'm not going to do that, because I, I think, actually, we should really... Really have a think about where this has come from. And I think quite a lot of us um, who saw those two little boys behind their mother's coffin all those years ago cannot fail to have been haunted by what was ahead of them. Whether they were privileged or underprivileged, that is an awful thing to have had to live through. And to know the circumstances in which um, Princess Diana's death happened, it's not surprising to me that, that Prince Harry feels very protective of his wife and his child. And, and I think the, the sort of misogyny and subtle, insidious forms of education towards racism, and certainly unpleasant treatment that she's had to face, where her decisions on food and child-rearing are picked apart to an unseemly manner. I think it's not surprising that Prince Harry and she have decided that they want to think about a different way of life. What about your colleague Clive Lewis's idea of this referendum on the future of the royal family? I'm not thrilled about the idea <coughs> of another referendum anytime soon on anything. <laughs> at all. Uh, let's get the perspective of Johnny Mercer. But Look, I think um, the government and the monarchy have been separated quite, you know, and, and quite rightly so. It'd be inappropriate, really, to to come out with with views on this. I think the palace have made their position pretty clear, um, and uh, you know, the monarchy and government should remain separate. It's an issue for the palace, um, and let's see what happens. Sonny Johnson, you were just about to. I, I wanted in. to come in on on this point about the the referendum. What we have to remember is the election we've just fought. 
I'm not trying to be party political here, but the Conservatives did have a very clear commitment to have a constitutional commission to look at all sorts of things, including in the House of Lords, including the power of the Supreme Court, including referendum, including boundaries, and I dare say also, you know, in that will come a discussion of the monarchy. Really? So don't forget, we are in there to talk about the Constitution. Read the, read the Conservative Manifesto. It is there. I've read it, but I, 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 I didn't quite join the dots to think it might involve something about the monarchy. Yeah, well, that's the Constitution, part of the Constitution in this country. It, 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 has, has, has your son whispered something in your ear about this? We don't whisper in our, my family. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> we, we communicate over the nation's airwaves and in the press. Well, that's interesting. Um, any answers uh, is following the Saturday edition of uh, Any Questions. Uh, the line's open at 12.30. Anita Arnand there to take your calls on 03700 100 444 for your perspectives on the monarchy, Harry and Meghan, and indeed some other topics that we will tumble in the direction of shortly. 03700 100 444. Any dot answers at bbc.co.uk. Let's take another question, please. Hi there, Mick Whitley. Was General Soleimani assassinated or justifiably killed? And are we now safer? The perspective of the government from Johnny Mercer. Look, uh, any nation has the right to self-defence, and I and I think that uh, it, you know, under certainly under UN Article uh, 51, um, it is it is the right thing to do. America had a decision to make um, with the facts presented to them. Look, there's no there's no doubt about it. When these decisions are made, um, they are difficult decisions, and there are uh, pros, there are uh, cons, but there are some things that are not in doubt, and that is one that General Soleimani was. Um, uh, he had the blood of British soldiers on his hands um, and he has driven uh, his militias throughout the Middle East causing carnage for many years so people like me I'm afraid uh, are not going to mourn his loss Um, you know the Middle East is an acutely uh, difficult area of the world Um, we're all um, you know want to see peace there it's gone on for far too long but you know uh, the most people who've suffered losses in that part of the world have been the people who live there. Um, and, and that's why, um, you know, we've got to work hard to de-escalate the situation, to, uh, to try and calm it down um, and to bring a, a measure of peace to the Middle East, a part of the world that has just seen um, an amount of bloodshed that I think breaks all of our hearts. What does it say about what is often described as the special relationship between the UK and the US, that the White House didn't tell the UK in advance that this was going to happen? It says nothing at all. I, I, in a previous job, uh, conducted drone strikes, and there are very very limited windows of opportunity uh, where you will try and uh, uh, inform as many people as you you can and, and try and do all the right things. But ultimately, these things are not, you know, it's not a game where everything lines up and suddenly everything black and white. Someone has to make a decision. Um, they took that decision. Uh, our relationship with the United States will always um, uh, rise above any political administration. Um, it goes back a long way. Um, and we are possibly the most interwoven nations on the planet when it comes to counterterrorism and security and defence. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I don't really think it speaks to speaks out at all. And, and um, you know, the Prime Minister has, has spoken to uh, President Trump and, uh, and to his opposite number in Iran and so on, uh, we've got a very clear role to play in this, uh, and I think we've been playing it. To address the second half of Mick's question, is the world a safer place 
as a result of what happened? Look, these, these, these answers are never... You can never definitively say one way or the other this close um, to the incident happening. I think um, the world will not miss Soleimani um, for, for one moment. Um, but, but obviously there are secondary and tertiary uh, events that are yet to play out. We've seen a response from Iran this week. Um, I think de-escalation is, is the key word here. Um, that part of the world has seen far too much conflict uh, for far too long. Ash Sarkar. <clears throat> the definition of madness is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. So in terms of Britain and America, we have a history in the modern period of taking out bad men and realising that worse men come to replace them. So this is something which happened with the removal of Saddam Hussein. Did it make Iraq any more stable? No, quite the opposite. Same in Libya. We remove Gaddafi, he's killed, and has it made Libya any, more, any safer, any more stable? No, it has not. Now, I'm not here shedding tears for Soleimani. I was But you'd speaking, rather him not have been killed. And I was speaking with a friend of mine who is in Erbil currently, and her father's friends and comrades were killed by Soleimani-affiliated militias in Basra. And so she is no friend of Soleimani. And when I messaged her this week asking, are you safe? What's the mood on the ground? How are things going? She said, the man was a butcher, but this was the worst way and the worst timing to get rid of him. And this is the thing, is that Donald Trump acted recklessly with no regard for what would come next. Of course, he doesn't have a plan. And it's not going to be his life at stake because of that decision. It will be primarily Iraqi civilians who have been at the mercy of these proxy wars driven by Iran and the United States and others. And I think that we will see an escalation of that bloodshed and very little responsibility for it taken by America. And as America's closest allies, I think we have a duty and a responsibility to call it out and criticise it. Because if not, what are we co-signing? I'm really interested in the, in the conversation that you'd had with your, your friend about this, and I don't know if the conversation extended to what I'm about to ask you, but you were talking about how this person referred to General Soleimani as a, as a butcher, but that this was the wrong way of dealing with the issue. What, would, what, in the view of your friend, would have been the right way? I'm just intrigued, given how complicated the reality of dealing with someone like him is. So... The conversation didn't stretch that far. Uh, it very quickly moved on to whether or not she was going to flee Erbil. The as last as time, a result of what had happened? The last time that she did so was when ISIS were moving towards Erbil, and now she's in a position of having to ask questions about whether or not she'll flee again. As for what would be a better way of going about this, well, you have to do very difficult things in diplomacy. And the Iran nuclear deal wasn't perfect. There was a lot that was wrong of it. But what was more wrong still was the US unilaterally pulling out. Now, I know that Britain is still committed to the Iran nuclear deal. I know that the EU still is committed to the Iran nuclear deal. But we have a reckless man in the White House who's got all the impulse control of a toddler who has got no regard for international cooperation or international okay. law. And that's a problem. Uh, let's bring in uh, Labour's Fangam Governor.
Thank you. I mean, f- first of all, Suleimani um, was uh, a butcher, a man who was an interventionist, and intervention in other people's countries uh, is a dangerous thing to do, and his intervention caused the death or contributed to the deaths of thousands and thousands of people, the displacement of around 13 million Syrians, bloodshed in Yemen and in Iraq, and assisting Assad in the chemical weapons use over his own civilians. I think these are all things for which we should ought we ought to be calling out Soleimani, and I'm glad that that is being exposed. However, I think interfering in other people's countries is a principle that we need to apply carefully, because I agree with Johnny about UN Article 51 and the right to self-defence. Of course, who wouldn't? And the first duty of any government is the protection of its citizens. I completely agree. But extraterritorial killing is a very worrying route to take because it is a measure of our civilization that civilization that both we in the UK and the US ought to want to promote across the world is what we do with murderous evil people as well as how we treat good people. I would have preferred him to be tried with the full force of law at the International Criminal Court. I know that there are difficulties in doing that. But then the question, does it make us... I mean, that's, to, put make, it, that's to put it gently, isn't yes, it? Yes, exactly. And there are real questions about the effectiveness of the ICC, and I know that. But I think we need to ask ourselves, has it actually made the world a safer place? Has it brought about more peace? And what's your answer? Will it have stopped Al-Quds? And my answer is I don't think it has. Now, we are, I, it's incredible relief to me that we've ended the week further away from war than it seemed on Monday. But this is a very frightening way to run a world in that on Monday it felt like we were about to step into something incredibly dangerous. By Friday, it feels a bit better, but it still feels incredibly unstable. I would have liked um, the US, for instance, to grant a visa to the UN, Iran, Iran foreign minister to be able to go to the UN so we could actually start doing some proper international diplomacy. Stanley Johnson. <clears throat> well, I want to make a, a kind of slightly avuncular point to Ash. May I call you Ash? That's my name. Well, I thought it might have been a you know, kind of first name, if you see what I mean. You anyway. can call me Miss Sarka, in the style <laughs> of Janet Jackson. Not Miss Sarka. <laughs> no, Ash. A slightly avuncular point is that it makes me uncomfortable you know, to hear language used about the President of the United States, you know, in a kind of derogatory way. It just makes me feel uncomfortable. I just make that as a tiny, tiny aside here. Now... The other thing I want to say is we mustn't get in the habit of thinking that Iran is an enemy. I remember spending four wonderful weeks in Iran on a BSA 500cc twin-cylinder shooting star motorcycle um, in 1961. And we went all over the country, and I had a most friendly reception. Before that, I was a classicist and a historian. So for me, Iran is absolutely not the enemy. It's the, it's the, the, the basis of our civilization. Okay, can I just gently nod you in the direction of okay, the next question? I'm getting there. And the question, is, the question is, you know, was this assassination um, or, or, or a justifiable killing? And I think we have to be unbelievably careful. I agree absolutely with, with what Thangham has said about this. We have to be very careful. But I also say, I also say that there has not been a pushback by Iran since then. And that, that's pretty important, if you see what I mean. All those missiles got fired, and they got fired, and they didn't hit anybody, and they deliberately didn't hit anybody. No, Ira- didn't Iraqis were, were killed in those uh, missiles. Not to my knowledge, but I may be wrong about that. OK, we're, we're going to bring Government Minister Johnny Mercer back in in a second. Just one specific Stanley Johnson, because Jeremy Corbyn, the outgoing Labour leader, has come in for a lot of grief from his critics about appearing on Press TV, the Iranian TV channel. You've been on that channel as well, haven't you? 
And I suddenly was. I remember it only too clearly. I came out of, a, uh, of an event, I think, I think it was the event where Boris was elected the, the, the conservative candidate, mm. the, the leader. Were you paid for that appearance? Oh, good heavens, no. No, basically someone said to me, what did I think? They've got our boat. Shall we give them their boat? I said, as far as I'm concerned, we should give them their boat. They should give us our boat. Easy peasy. And that turned out to be, by the, what, by the way, what happened in the end. The point I'm really making is it's no good anathematizing Iran. We have to work with them. And this crucial thing which you mentioned, which is the, the nuclear deal, mm -hmm. we have to stick with that. It, it is absolutely vital. Because if we don't, the other option will be to try and take out the Israeli nuclear facility. And Johnny Mercer, on that point, and I know you've got a separate point that you might want to make, on the, on the Iran nuclear deal, we've got the British government saying stick with it, it's the best we've got, and we've got Donald Trump saying it's, it's no use. How do you find a solution through that very stark disagreement? Well, I, I think our position is that the, the nuclear deal is, is a, uh, a framework that we would like to see adhered to. The US has made their position clear that they, they have a different view. And you know, for those who are looking for us to... Uh, separate ourselves from the US in terms of foreign policy in some areas. That, that's a very clear one that's there. But I just, I just think that we're in danger sometimes of being a little bit too idealist when it comes to what is required to maintain the, the privileges and freedoms we enjoy. And it's something that I've certainly found very difficult going into, uh, into <coughs> politics. We can have a lot of debate uh, in, in fairly comfortable circumstances. Some of the commentary on what's gone on this week, I, I think, has been, you know, nine out of ten people commentating on it had never heard of Soleimani before. Um, you know, we, we're not going to drift into... Does that disqualify uh, them World from War a view, III. though? Say again? Does that disqualify them from a view? No, but I think, I think using it to um, accelerate a view, that, uh, you know, one way or the other on Donald Trump, if you're actually Donald Trump and you're sat there at the end of this week and Iran has retaliated and, uh, and you sit there, you're, you're thinking actually my foreign policy um, ha has probably been pretty successful this week because I've got rid of someone who has been killing American soldiers for a long time. So I just think a balanced view is better rather than, um, okay. you know, sort of leaning particularly one way or the other. I'm going to move on to another topic uh, because we're just two questions down and uh, more than halfway through the programme. Uh, let's hear from Kathleen Bears. Hi, Kathleen. Hello. Who does the panel think will be the best person to lead the Labour Party? <laughs> I think this has your name on it, thank you, I'm Debonair. Does it? You want me to go first or last? I, I, can, I can go first for <laughs> okay. this one. Um, well, <clears throat> I, uh, I have nominated someone. I want a leader who can communicate... Uh, whose communication skills are absolutely outstanding. I want a leader who has a brain the size of a fairly large planet, actually, I'd quite like, uh, who can build relationships and teams, who can manage the really complicated being that is the Parliamentary Labour Party, and I'm very proud part of that Labour Party, but it is complicated, and the wider membership. I want someone who can show the people of the United Kingdom that they understand their hopes and aspirations, and who really reflects Labour values, and, and so that and is... Before you tell us, and before you tell us the answer to that, how, how many of those boxes did Jeremy Corbyn tick? <laughs> uh, well, I think everyone here knows that I didn't nominate Jeremy. I nominated, this week, Keir Starmer, and I was very proud to I was extremely proud to, and I was proud to because I want to nominate the next Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, and I wanted to nominate someone who's okay. going to take us to a winning general election next time round. What, so, what about, that, that's interesting, because actually just before the Johnny general Wilson. election, I saw you giving a rousing speech in support of Jeremy nope, up in never did. Bristol. Nope, didn't um, do any such thing. And how a Labour government was needed, and Jeremy yes. Corbyn should be Prime no, Minister. No, I didn't say that at all. You misquoted me, Johnny. Extraordinary. If you, you were no, campaigning not a for word. a Labour government, Your Labour government that would yes, have seen Jeremy Corbyn in power, about Jeremy. and it's been quite well, a minute, he was your leader. I know, yeah. so it follows 
plays on, doesn't it? It's I, quite interesting to see people running away at a speed of knots from Jeremy Corbyn. I'm not running away from him. Having tried to elect him only four weeks ago. So Thank it seems you. a little bit... Every Labour government is better than any Tory government in my view. So, of course, I campaign for a Labour government. Of course, I campaign for a Labour government. And I would have been proud... I would have been proud to serve Jeremy. I just think it's, it's no, there's, no, there's no problem. I have no problem saying I didn't nominate Jeremy in 2015, but I served him because I served the Labour Party. We don't have a presidential system of government in this country, but I do want a leader who is going to convince the people of the United Kingdom not to vote Tory and to vote Labour, and that's why I nominated Keir. What were his, cent- I mean, what were his central failings, Jeremy Corbyn? I mean, clearly losing two general elections is up there, but in terms of his perspective, how he was to, to work with and how he was to sell? Well, the question was about who's the best person to lead the Labour Party, and I think that Keir Starmer is the best person to lead the Labour Party, and that's what I'm working on at the moment, is getting him elected to lead the Labour Party. Um, I think if anyone is interested, I also nominated Rosanna Allen Khan for deputy leader, and I think she'd be outstanding as well. But I think that the most important quality a leader needs to have is the ability to make people believe in them, to trust them. And patently, we as a party have not been able to do that for the last two general elections. And Jeremy has done the honourable thing and resigned. And stuck... uh, Yes, absolutely, last four. Thank you, Chris, (laughs) for reminding (laughs) me of that. Just reminding the two before that. Yes, yes, they seem so long ago. Um, But I don't want to keep doing that, obviously. I'm a Labour politician, not not for fun, but for serious, because I think the Labour Party is the best party to run the country, and I want the next (laughs) general election to be won by the Labour Party. We should just say that our audience in the room here is entirely uh, self-selecting and very welcome, but we are in a, despite the noise you just heard there, a uh, conservative seat. Uh, Let's get the uh, perspective of Stanley Johnson, because you know one or two things about uh, leaders in the family. So who should Labour pick? Uh, Who could you be talking about? Um, I think I'm going to be a little bit um, cynical here, if I may. As far as I'm concerned, as a former... Tory politician, uh, MEP, and so on and so forth, with have some, having some links with the Conservative Party now. As far as I'm concerned... Some links, I like that. Some links, yeah, I think that these are, these are real links. I think that the best possible thing would be for Labour to continue down the suicide route which it embarked upon, you know, some... <laughs> some years ago. And, and, and in that context, I long for Bailey... Rebecca Long Bailey. <laughs> I think that she would do the job superbly. <laughs> Labour will be unelectable for the foreseeable future. On that topic of Rebecca Long Bailey, just briefly back to you, thank you, I'm Debonair. Rebecca Long Bailey, one of the candidates for the uh, Labour leadership, some, was seen perhaps prior to this week as perhaps the favourite, gave Jeremy Corbyn 10 out of 10. What would you give Jeremy Corbyn? I think scoring leaders, 10 out of 10, 0 out of 10, I think scoring them out of 10 is really unhelpful. On what dimension? On what quality? So I'm not going to do that. All I'm going to do is focus on getting the next leader of the Labour Party elected. It was worth a try. It was. Uh, (laughs) But I wasn't going to play. I suspect Rebecca Long-Bailey might duck that question the next time time it's asked, and I'm sure she would make a case, despite what Sonny was saying, that she could lead Labour to a... To a brighter future. Ash Sarko, as, as someone on the left, but I guess detached from the Labour Party, because you're not a member of the Labour you Party, know what? are you? I joined like maybe two weeks into the general election campaign. Oh, did you? I did. What, with a view to having a vote after they'd lost? No, because I was doing events and talks, and so with the election spend, if you want to do a local event, you have to be a member. So that's such a boring reason, isn't it? But it oh means you're going to get a vote in the leadership race, so who do you want to be the next Labour leader? 
So I haven't quite made up my mind. I know who reflects my politics very well. Who? And that is Rebecca Long-Bailey. Her work on climate change in particular has been spectacular. But not being an MP, I've got the luxury of thinking through all the things that I called wrong, all the things that I misjudged, and all of the really hard lessons there are to learn. And, and what I think, were they out of interest? Just your personal reflections on what oh you... Oh, my God. OK, right. How long have you got? Okay. Well, not long. All right. Major thing that I got wrong was Brexit. I thought that putting a choice back to the people with Remain on the ballot would be something that people would want, whereas actually what they wanted was an end to all of the chicanery and to all of the frustration. The second thing, the second thing which I got wrong in a very big way was that I assumed that because polls had been wrong before, that they would be wrong again, and what was important was the direction of travel. Of course, that wasn't the case. And the third thing that I got wrong was that a really good ground game and getting your activist base really enthused and out there knocking doors, taking weeks off work, would be a substitute for a lack of political strategy coming from the top. So I'm not done learning lessons. And I think that if you come out of a defeat like that, no matter what side of the Labour Party you come from, whether you come from the right, the centre, or indeed the left, and you go, you know what, the problem was everyone else and not me, Mm -hmm. that kind of makes you a psychopath. Just very, very briefly, um, (laughs) what... But from the perspective, from your perspective as someone on the left of the Labour movement, what about the argument that says the last two general elections prove that however uh, coherent your outlook, however passionate you might feel about it, the British public just will never buy it? So let's look at the last four general elections which have been lost by Labour. You've had three Labour leaders each representing different bits of the party, losing four general elections in a row. And the only result which seemed to buck the trend of a decline in voter share was 2017 with Jeremy Corbyn. Now, that couldn't be sustained, and it did collapse in 2019. So I think that this idea that what you have to do is calibrate the perfect centrist with the perfect hair and the perfect media style, and that suddenly this this trend of decline is going to stop, I think that's a lot of self-comforting. I think there's a global shift to the right, and we see that um, across lots of different countries. Britain has been no exception. One of the few countries to be able to frustrate that slide to the right has been in Spain, where there has been an agreement between a far-left party and a more social Democrat one. So I think if you can shape that kind of consensus, then perhaps we'd be looking at the revival of Labour fortunes. Do you know... Can Brief, I come back briefly. on that, Chris? Yeah, I mean, do you know, I, I, I'm sorry, Ash. I think, you know, you've just joined the Labour Party for what seemed to me to be incredibly opportunistic reasons, and I do hope that someone's vetting your application to check that your aims are in sympathy with the aims of the Labour Party, because that is a rule of the Labour Party. But before you exercise your vote, I hope you will consider the voters, and the voters basically want to know that their kids' school is going to have enough money to run properly, that hospitals are going to be running properly when they need them, and that the person to whom they are entrusting their taxes is going to spend them wisely. And that's not about hairstyle. And I think it demeans you to make out that I was implying that it that's was all not about kids' hairstyle. No, I, I actually, was, I actually wasn't talking about your comments at all. But thanks Good. for trying to kick me out of the party before I even get my membership card. No, I'm not I in mean, charge of complaints. No, but I, th- I, but I think I think that this is this is part of the problem. Is that everyone's going not me, Gov? I wasn't part of the problem, Gov. Whereas I think. I can sit here and I can go, here's what I got wrong. And let's have an honest conversation of the basis of that. Rather than cutting off someone who doesn't agree with me and saying, you perhaps don't have any place in this party because I don't like you very much. Well, I think I that's know. quite immature. So I didn't say that either. 
Yeah, well, um, didn't say that either. Uh, dear listener, you can hear there is something of a debate uh, on the, in the left uh, in the UK right now and within the uh, Labour movement. If you want to contribute to it on any answers, Anita Arnand is awaiting your call after the Saturday edition of Any Questions. 03700 100 0300 100 uh, Final perspective on this question from Johnny Mercer for the Conservatives. I guess jokes aside about any party wanting the, their principal opponent to be read by some, led by someone who is useless, um, <laughs> from the perspective of the governance of the country, it's good, isn't it, that a, that a government faces a, a viable opposition that could beat it at the next election because it keeps you on your toes? I think uh, my view on this has always, always been the same, that a good government needs a good opposition to hold it to account. And, I, you know, I've actually you know, got more sort of sympathy with, with Ash, who seems to kind of believe in something rather than the Labour MPs who I've seen behave in the last um, two years in the House of Commons with all this Brexit that's going on and, you know, pretending they're particularly concerned about particular parts of the Brexit bill, where it's all been about stopping Brexit, it's all been about self-preservation. Um, it's been quite extraordinary to watch. At least people like Ash actually believe in something. Um, whereas, uh, for my mind, there's a lot of sort of actors and players and self-serving individuals sat on the Labour benches that have, le- have left them there. So, you know, do we want to... Uh, obviously, the Tories um, uh, would love Jeremy Corbyn to stay. I think he's fantastic. He'd be a brilliant Prime Minister, and I think that he should stay as leader of the Labour Party. Um, <laughs> But failing that, um, no, look, we, we do want a, a good opposition to, to hold the Conservative government to account. I think, uh, you know, the system works of, of challenge and opposition across the House. Um, and we've got some serious challenges going forward that we have to meet. And so people like me want to see good governments and that requires a good opposition. Did you notice, dear listener, that we're nearly 40 minutes into uh, any questions? And I think that was the first mention of Brexit. <laughs> Which is quite something. Uh, the other joy of being the other side of a general election campaign with all of its uh, keenly fought policy platforms and manifestos is taking questions that are a little, a little different. And our next falls into that category, provided by uh, Neil Burden. Hi, Neil. Hello. Um, do you still use cash? And if so, why? Uh. Stanley Johnson. I do use cash because my wife needs it. <laughs> That's, you know, and a couple of times a week, you know, she says, have I got a hundred pounds? So I always have several hundred pounds in cash. What about your person right now? Is your wallet in the pocket that's closest to me? No, is taking his wallet out of the back of his trouser pocket. Well, we're going to say cash to ashes. I mean, cash. Cash oh, it's rash. quite big as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. there's plenty in there. I just always have used a lot of cash. And I think that we are going to go on using cash for a very, very long time. Are you a, are you a contactless person then, or is it always cash? I'm being a bit too technical. What do you mean by contactless? Sorry, I'm I'm lapsing into terrible 21st century jargon here. This whole business of getting your debit card out and holding it above a machine that goes beep. (laughs) You can do it on your phone as well. I know exactly what you're talking about. I've tried to buy the ticket at Paddington. I got the Daily Mail. I've told you that at Paddington. Then it said, you've got a a number, and every time I put the 
my credit card and said, we don't recognize. So I couldn't get the ticket. So finally I had to go and to the credit, credit office, ticket office, and said, would you mind you know, giving me a ticket anyway? So I think that the, you know, cash, is, is, cash is still king as far as I'm concerned. According to UK Finance in 2018, 10.98 billion payments were made in cash. That was 27.9% of all UK transactions. 46.6% were debit and credit cards. And apparently the bit in between is things like direct debits and all that kind of stuff. Um, Ash Sarker. Do I use cash or do I use cards? Do you use cash? So I found myself really relying on cash when I was living in this estate in south-east London and all of my nearest shops were cash only. And it dawned on me that this was still one of the really deprived pockets in London. And so it meant that... Well, maybe you... it's because they weren't paying any tax. <laughs> but no, it was also the case that if you wanted to like, top up your like, gas or lecky key... It was cash only. And so I was then wondering idly, because I've been to a few cafes recently where it's all chip and pin or um, contactless payment. And I just thought, well, who does that exclude? It excludes uh, homeless people, people who rely on cash, who don't necessarily have a fixed address, don't have a credit card, don't have a debit card. It excludes people who maybe are newly arrived in this country and don't have a UK credit or debit card and they're one from back home charges them through the nose and it excludes people who maybe live in those areas where there's a high reliance on cash still um and so yeah that was just a, a, a sort of idle thought is that mm-hmm. as we become more of a like debit and credit card focused <laughs> society is um who does that exclude uh thank i'm debonair for labor um, How I much mean, cash have you got rattling around in your it, pocket? Do you know, uh, not as much as Stanley, clearly. <laughs> I'm doing something wrong. I don't think there's been any point in my life where I just casually carried around a couple of hundred quid just in case. Um, I do find that there is the occasional shop that I go to where you can't pay by card. And so I do have some cash with me. Plus, I think it's important, there are still some places where it's really important to be able to tip in cash um, because tips are not otherwise shared out fairly amongst the people who do the most of the, the, the hard work at the, at the front of house or at the back of house. Um, I think there are parts of my constituency where I would agree with Ash, there are people who are, digi- who are excluded um, because they cannot get hold of the sort of accruitments like, such as phone credit and, and debit cards and so on because of their levels of poverty. And I think if we go to a completely cashless society, we will be excluding large numbers of people and that troubles me. Johnny Mercer for the Conservatives. Um, I do, yeah, I, I mean, I do, uh, in London, generally, I mean, it's pretty um, useful for... Um, they call it tapping in and tapping out, don't they, on the underground? Mm-hmm. But down, no, certainly down, um, I live down in this part of the world, there's pubs in this very town who do not accept cards, and rightly so. So you can go around with, um, with, with some money. But the downside is obviously leave your change on the side and the kids nick it, so you start losing money <laughs> pretty quickly. Tiny point. Go, Stanley has a tiny yeah, point. I've got a tiny point. I mean, I'm making my point about cash. I was doing this thing, as you mentioned, called Celebrity Hunted, and I got into terrible trouble when I use my credit card, because within five seconds of using my credit card, somebody knew where I was and how much I'd spent. Ah. And so on and so forth. And I do see to say to myself, do we really want to give this sort of data out? All that I'm, as far as I'm concerned, we still manage to get down to Cornwall. <laughs> <laughs> we have about five minutes left and time for one final question from Martin Venning. Hello, Martin. Hi. When Nancy Astor defeated Sir Isaac Foote in the Plymouth Sutton by-election in 1919... They became lifelong friends. 
could this kind of cross-party friendship happen in 2020? You see, that's what I love, Martin, about Radio 4. A question that refers to a by-election from 101 years ago. (laughs) That is fantastic. Um... Johnny Mercer. Yeah, I think, I think they can. I'll be honest, some of my best friends in London are in the Labour Party, people like Peter Kyle and Brighton and things like that. Um, you know, for people who get... I, I think you get two different types of people in politics, OK? You get people who go into it uh, who are doers, who see it as a vehicle to get things done, so they come in with a cause that they believe in, and there are those who sort of come in because they want to be somebody or it's some sort of uh, stage for them to, to, to walk about on. Um, I think um, that is a much uh, clearer defining issue as to whether you'll be friends with someone um, rather than uh, party political persuasion. At the end of the day, parties are broad political churches where you have to compromise and you have to work together um, unless, otherwise you just simply will not achieve the strategic aims you're trying to be, whether it's around the life chances agenda, poverty, uh, the military veterans, all these other things. So, um, so I, I think it can be done. Um, I think it's very important as well. So, big secret, uh, you can't actually get anything done in Parliament, yeah, certainly if you're true. in the opposition party, without yeah. having relation, building relationships with people in other parties. But more importantly, in life, I think it would be incredibly dull only to mix with people who had exactly the same political views as you. Who, who's and, your favourite Conservative MP? Uh, my favourite Conservative MP is Rebecca Harris, who's a government whip, and it's because I've been, in the, I've been in the whip's office so long, and we spend a lot of time working together, and we do lots and lots of things that only whips would find interesting. And you have to be a whip. <laughs> you have to be a whip to know what those things are. Oh, thank goodness we don't have time to yes. ask you about that. Yeah. Um, uh, Ash Sarkar, I think you once said that you'd never knowingly kissed a Tory. Still true. Um, given that the party of which you hope to be a member, and maybe you already are, if Thangam hasn't ripped up your membership already, um, uh, needs to persuade people who have voted Conservative to vote Labour if you're ever going to be in government, you have to is that a them. good idea? I mean, I, I think if I go around kissing Tories, it would actually result in a larger Conservative majority the next time around. So I don't think that they should be front and centre of an election campaign. I think when it comes to friendships, it's not really about the colour of your rosette. It's about the values that you embody. And I think that there are certain bits of legislation where either voting for them or voting against them, okay. I would really struggle to be friends with someone who had that kind of effect on people's lives in this country. Stanley Johnson, briefly. Briefly, I think today, of of all days, when we have finally got the Brexit bill through the House of Commons, we have to heave a sigh of relief and say one of the most poisonous things as far as inter-party relationships are concerned and inter-family relationships are concerned, intra-family too, by the way, with any luck, that's over, and we can heave a deep sigh of relief and re-establish friendships. Thank you, uh, Stanley Johnson. Uh, thank you to our fantastic hosts here in the incredibly illuminated theatre uh, in the Town Hall in uh, Launceston. Uh, next week, we are going to be at the Assembly Buildings Conference Centre in Belfast. And as luck would have it, there's a smidgen of news in Northern Ireland at the moment. That is called Good Fortune. But from all of us here in Cornwall, uh, thank you for listening and Happy New Year. Thank you for listening to Any Questions. We're back next week in a different spot somewhere in the UK. Please subscribe to us on BBC Sounds. Oh, and if you fancy hosting us one week, drop us an email, any.questions at bbc.co.uk.